Hey, Risso here with George Mason University. Uh, today we're talking with Dr. James Rudd, who is a senior lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University. Uh, we're discussing his recent paper that came out in PSP, uh, An Ecological Dynamics Conceptualization of Physical Education. Um, where we have been and where we could go next. Um, I'll put the full site into the notes so you can click on that to read the full paper. Um, James, welcome to the podcast and thanks for coming on. It's fantastic to be with you, Risto. Um, really excited, love your work. It's a really good way to kind of keep up to date with all the great PE research which is going on around the world. And uh, yeah, especially when it's, we're all so busy, leading mm -hmm. busy lives. So yeah, fantastic and great to be on the show or on the podcast. Awesome. Uh, so can we just start with the title of your article? Uh, where do you feel we are in terms of PE in general from your point of view? Yeah, good question. Um, where do I think, well, the title, An Ecological Dynamics Conceptualization of Physical Education. And in that title, I highlight where we have been and where we could go. And, and this paper is really around exploring theories of movement learning and potentially how they may have influenced physical education in the past, but potentially how they could influence physical education in the future. Um, in where I think PE currently is today, in my opinion, I think it's in good shape. I think there's lots of wonderful academics out there doing some really interesting research around pedagogical practices. So when I'm talking about pedagogical practices, uh, assessment, curriculum design, instructions, the planning. Um, and why I think this is so important is it's very much moving away from a focus on the physical and really the educational value of the subject of physical education. And that to me is really important for our subject to move on and uh, strive and thrive in educational circles and educational institutions. Uh, and yeah, I guess this paper for me was something which I, I wanted to, I published a lot of papers in the past and I say a lot, I've published papers in the past, I'm not saying lots, but have published, and, and these were very much more in sports science journals. Mm -hmm. They were, so they may not have been read by the physical education um, academics, but also potentially be, be very well known to um, students and PE teachers out there. Um, so I want, but, Saying that, the research itself has always focused, or had a focus on physical education, the subject is where my research is focused upon. Um, and so this paper was really an important paper to me because it allowed me to in, try to engage the area of physical education into the research I'm doing around movement learning theory. Yeah. And, the theory and the theories of movement le learning, how they could really support us in our pedagogical journey and providing an educational value to, to, to our subject. Um, and what was key to me, and what's, if I step back a bit and just say why this was so important to me, um, or why, why I was drawn to this area. So a bit of backstory to me is I um, studied sports science at university. I then went on to work as a physical education teacher for seven years in southeast London. Um, from that, I, I, I was always fascinated by the that um, I'm always I'm educating through movement. So children are learning in my subject through movement, and I always felt I didn't really I, I, I knew certain things which worked quite well and things which didn't work quite well, but I didn't really have a framework to which to, to potentially develop these ideas upon. So that took me to uh, fast forward to undertake a PhD and that PhD was looking at motor development and motor learning within a physical education setting. And yeah, that's when I really became interested in how can we use theories of motor learning um, or movement learning to support our pedagogical practice and inform our pedagogical practice. So I guess yeah, that's where, where, where I, where I, where I came from, 
to, to writing this article, which we'll be discussing today. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's really valuable to have different points of view coming into pedagogy research. And I think that looking at a, a similar problem from a bunch of different angles is really valuable. And I don't think that there is one, and I think that is a misconception for a lot of you know, physical educators or people who want to get PhDs. They think that it's such a linear line, and there definitely are. But, you know, like my master's degree was in sports psychology. I spent a decade coaching and that's what I loved doing. And I thought that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life until other opportunities presented themselves. And then I went into physical education from there. So I think it's it's valuable to have these different looks. And I and I liked reading your paper because it took this kind of motor learning approach, but it was guiding it through. And you we went really heavy into theories in this paper. So one of those was the ecological dynamic approach. So can you explain what that is in the, in the easiest way possible? Sure, I, I most definitely can give it a good go. Before that though, I think what, if it's all right by you, yeah. I'd, I'd like to step back and look where we have been potentially in motor learning. And so other theories of, of movement learning as well, which I do mention in this paper, because I think that can kind of hype, try to create a bit of a contrast, mm -hmm. which, which will kind of help digest some of this. So a quick question to you, Risto, if, you, if, if, you, if I can be a bit cheeky. Before reading the paper, had you come across any theories of movement learning or had, had, had any it talked to you at all um, it, during your, your uh, degrees? At a very early time in my degrees, like I... I could say that for sure in undergraduate courses, somebody talked to me about movement learning theories. However, yeah. do I remember any of them? No. Do I use them in my everyday practice? Not so much. Do I, did I see some of the principles that I talk about in my elementary methods class through the theories that you present? Yeah, I can make those links, but I, did not, I do yeah. not objectively or explicitly say this is the you know dynamical systems theory, or this is this theory that then yeah, yeah. informs it. So I would say that no, no, no. It's, it's 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 good to know, and I think you, you what your experience might will not be dissimilar to many many people or most of the listeners out there. The theory which I do come across a lot, and is in, in our A level and GCSE theory, for example, um, PE. Um, courses over here in the UK um, are really more theories of information processing of motor learning. So these are kind of linear theories to skill development, which are quite performance oriented. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the acquisition of skill. So it's about something we acquire. And I'm not going to go into huge detail, but I'm going to just touch on it because then I think it will highlight the contrast a little bit. So these, this theory is very much about the idea that our perceptual systems or our uh, is, is impoverished. And what we have to do is when we are learning a skill is we have to almost fill in the blanks or color in from a gray. So let me step back a little bit. So our sensories, our, our sight, uh, sound, sounds, perceptual, kinesthetic feel, our brains, Okay, will process this information, make sense of this information, and then will really create a mental model of what's going on in the world around us. And the more then experience we have at learning a specific skill or sets of skills, the more repetitions we have, the more clear this mental model becomes. And we so we start to really it's called indirect perception, and we're developing this model and our brains as perceived as very much being these kind of computers, these very, very powerful processes of information. And what happens with this information? We have a cue from the environment. Our the sensory system takes this information in. Our brains kind of create this mental mo model. And if we have useful feedback, we had success, it will reinforce and this mental model will be updated and that will lead to our long-term memory. And we become more skilled. 
And that's kind of this idea of an information processing theory. It was very, very popular in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and to be honest, it's still some really good research going on in this area today, but it has changed. But the research which is taught at an undergraduate and at lower years is this more basic, the fundamentals of the uh, information processing theory, which I've just kind of highlighted. There are, saying this, I'm, I'm just, the last thing I'll kind of highlight on this is there is some value in this, in this potential idea of how we learn skills in that it potentially um, ca could shape, and I, I've actually in, a, in some previous papers explored this, of going, well, could I use this model of how we learn to move to develop a pedagogical uh, P practice? So for instance, things like differentiation and planning. This idea of going, well, okay, if I have a children who have never learned a skill before and are very much at early learning a rudimentary stage is well based on this theory of motor learning it can provide me with a model or, or provide me with information of how i move children um towards an optimal movement technique so one popular model which you may have, have you ever heard of fitz and posner um yeah. stages of learning no so this model highlights that through learning any motor skill, we go through three stages. Uh, a cognitive stage, which is very much early learning, we progress quite quickly. But during this stage, it's very much about the child or adult, they know absolutely nothing. And we have to problem solve and figure out what exactly we're going to do. And then the role of me as an educator is to kind of give them a lot of support at this stage. So I'll be giving lots of feedback, I'll be giving lots of direct instruction about, okay, so they get a sense of how they're doing so they can progress through this stage quite quickly. It's called the cognitive stage because the loss of, according to this theory, a lot of the cognitive, um, our cognitive capacity is taken up trying to solve, work out what we're doing. And therefore we don't focus on the wider environment. We're very much focused on the skill in a closed, isolated environment. And we will have, a, say, if we're learning to kick a ball, we wouldn't have defenders. We'd have a ball in front of a child and we'd be going, okay, what you need to do is run up to it, follow through, get your foot nice and close to it and follow through as you kick, okay? But we're in a closed environment free from distraction because actually all the cognitive capacity, the computing power, the processing is currently taken up with the focus on the skill. As we children, children start to progress, and that could be a tennis shot, it could be an overarm throw, it could be any sort of movement skill you can think of. But as they actually become that, they start to get the feel and understanding of how that's done. But actually the child then, we can start moving them out of these closed environments of learning these movement skills to maybe having a little bit more environmental information. So this stage is actually okay by not having to spend so much cognitive capacity on the skill itself, they can start to look and understand what's going on in the world around them and potentially keep a head up to look for that path. All right. And, and the thought process behind this is that actually the skill, the scheme has been developed. So it's almost becomes automatic. The subcontent we are, we, the skill is getting to a point where it can automatically run and we can start putting some of our attentional resources to other factors in in the environment and if we think of some of the activities maybe in PE we use keep your heads up how many fingers am I holding mm -hmm. up when dribbling a basketball we're trying to move kids from that cognitive stage maybe to that more associative and eventually to autonomous when they can have a defender who's pressuring them and they're able to keep the dribble while trying to scan the environment and find a another player one of their teammates and the idea there is we're working towards a journey of automaticity, okay? But the skill becomes so automatic, it's taking up very little attentional detail and we can focus on the wider environment. And this is that idea of really indirect perception and that idea we're developing a memory trace or schema so a skill can potentially become, become automatic. And, and, and with that, it can provide me a framework to potentially develop 
children and help my planning, etc. With that, though, I think there are some challenges. For me, I learned when I read and learned about these theory, this theory, it didn't feel quite right for me in a pedagogy setting. And there were a number of reasons for this. One is it was very performance-based, mm-hmm. kind of very, um, very narrow curriculum where I'm focused on, hey, okay, let's learn to, this lesson we're going to learn to do throwing. And we're going to start in these closed environments. We're going to get open environments. And in the end, we might end up in a game. So it had this kind of more traditional focus to the lesson. Um, and it, the children, it's, it's about rote repetition. And, and, and then they, they, they struggled to really, it felt like I was, they were almost on a, uh, it was traditional. It, right. it, it felt very traditional type of lesson traditional PE lesson and it felt very teacher-led so I'm the center of it I'm taking you through on a journey towards automaticity but when in life do we do we want to be on autopilot would that not be quite dangerous would that be not quite uh, yeah the the wrong way to kind of educate people Mm -hmm. to be able to become to memorize things and, and to a point where you're not having to focus. Yeah, so I think for me, this has potential to be had educational value for children's education as, as a pedagogical model or practice we, we could use because um, it informs all the elements of potential pedagogy. There, and also the, the other thing I'd say is actually it would fit quite well in a PE, in an education system where academic growth is what's essential, which is really prioritized. Mm-hmm. Um, these ideas of, yeah, kind of really, they are fixated on developing the cognitive growth. And what are we doing? Through that theory of motor learning, we are trying, hypothesizing, and it is only a hypothesis here, in a way that we are potentially. Uh, we are developing these schemas on memory traces, which is going to be, actually lead you to become a better performer, or have better movement skills and, and a better performer out in the, in the pitch. But when you see it in practice, what you get fi- start to find, it's a very traditional and linear approach to learning this road to automaticity. It's very teacher-led, teacher-directed, you're trying to squash out their ability. So in that, you're trying to take away, um, you're correcting a child's movement to help them to get to this stage of automaticity. So we're kind of seeing any errors or any variability in their movements or doing it a slightly different way than what the optimal what the template or should look like. We're actually saying, well, well, but we're correcting them. So we're, we're, we're giving them corrective feedback. So they become very passive learners yeah. and we become very much the center. And for me, this wasn't an enjoyable experience for them and it wasn't an enjoyable experience to me as an educator or as a teacher. Yeah. And actually, it became quite a divisive curriculum because... Well, actually, certain children in the class would never be able to reach for stru- for, for potential issues they may have um, or, or disabilities they may have or things would never reach my optimal template or model of these ideas. Mm-hmm. And that becomes quite challenging. And, 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 and yeah, they're almost moving up a conveyor belt. And, and to me, that's not good education. It's not what I want. And actually... I really wanted to explore, I could see the value in movement learning. I could see this idea of it providing me an educational framework to support my pedagogical choices. And really, because what it's telling me is how the learn, how is their theories on how we learn to move. And I kind of always resonated me by the work of Peters of that in through and about movement and, and, and kind of exploring that space. So I really wanted to keep exploring this. And this led me over the last four or 
or five years to this theory of ecological dynamics, yeah. um, which I think we're going to get onto now. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because the way that you you wrote that piece about like I I didn't know or I didn't I don't use that theory, but that is the very traditional way of teaching PE, which I would admit that I would teach my students how to teach. Like that's elementary methods. How do you develop skill? You do first step, second step, third step. We teach in isolation and then we teach in, you know, a little bit of more refinement. And then we put in a game-like situation and hope it becomes automatic by the time they get to X grade and they can develop in that way. And I feel like I've fallen into the trap of looking at, okay, this student can only process this much. So let's, let's just like keep it, keep it in this box. This is the only thing that you're going to do. And, and I found that, you know, the ecological dynamic approach was, was something interesting. So can you, can you share a little bit about that? Sure, I can. As I say, I really recommend if people are interested in this to read the paper because I'll go into in the paper in a lot more depth and try to give more examples, but I will spend a bit of time now exploring ecological dynamics. So starting off, ecological dynamics isn't so much about acquiring skills. It's not about acquiring something as in our information processing approach was. It's not about, uh, it's not a deficit model where we're trying to fill up or develop. In fact, Keith Davids talks about it around skill adaptation. So it's not about acquiring, but it's about adapting to the environments in which we are situated. Okay. And there's symmetry between the environment and the individual. So it's not really child centered because we're not focusing on a child. It's not teaching, but it is focused. It's an interaction. It's looking at the interaction between the child and the environment. And I'm hoping as I go through these theories of ecological dynamics, so that mm-hmm. will become more clear what I mean by that. And, and so, you, so talk, you talk about the ecological psychology, dynamical systems theory, and complex adaptive systems. So as, as you're going through this di- ecological dynamic approach, I, I know that you're going to kind of get into these, uh, these different things, which, again, is complicated. But again, like you said, when, when you're reading the paper, you actually do a really good job giving some examples of, of, of how this works. And those theories, to me, when I read them, I was like, oh here we go. Like, I'm going to have to really pay attention and dig deep and understand it. And you did a really good job. So, um, feel free to continue. Sorry to interrupt there. No, no, no. It's it's great to get, it's great to get feedback. Um, and and it's probably, I know for me learning about these theories, it's not just a one read. You can't read it once and get it. You've got to kind of keep going back. And there's a wealth of literature out there. And, And to be honest, Interestingly enough, it's in a high-performance sports um, arena and some of the coaching arenas where a lot of this has been written about. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's not a performance pedagogy. It's not performance-related. So don't don't want us going down that. But it's been Keith Davids and a few other people have really pioneered that, but they've had a very deep interest in yeah sport. So anyway, I don't want to go there, but I do want to talk about, as you've just highlighted, these three theories, which are kind of ecological dynamics is an umbrella for. So it's an obvious theory. So the first one, as you've mentioned, is ecological psychology. And this is the theory of direct perception. And I'll come on to that. Then we have dynamical systems. That's the ecological part. And then you have dynamical systems theory. This is a theory of really complex systems and self-organization of those systems. And I'm going to talk about that. And then we have neurobiological systems. And this is the idea of degeneracy. So rather than having one optimal movement solution or one movement performance or a a template for a specific movement, it's the idea of about, we all will have, uh, we'll find functional movement solutions. So there's many different ways to achieving a task. Okay, there's many ways, there's not one way. All right, so pedagogically that has massive implications. We aren't convergently working towards a specific movement pattern. We're actually trying to find a functional way for that individual to perform that skill. And it may not look the way we would do it. And I'll come on to why that's important and how this falls out of these three theories. 
All right. So let me give you a, a, a few exam basic examples to try to explore some of these theories with you. So first of all, let's talk about ecological psychology. The idea of this one, as I said, is the idea of direct perception is that there's enough information in our environment to make sense of the world in a direct way. Okay. So what that means and why I wanted us to look at the pro information processing theory first is that there isn't any computational processing going on. All right during the learning of movement skills. All the information we need to perform a skill is in the environment and we directly perceive that. So again, let's try to explain this again. So let's take a PE example um, that say, and it's something I see quite often. So we might go, right, we are going to do a, um, we want our kids to be better at kind of dodging uh, agility work say agility work and uh, a bit more dexterous dexterous on their feet and be able to, to to dodge in and out weave in and out of opponents on the whatever invasion game you're going to be playing what we might go and do is go right we're going to put down some cones so there's a simplification task to that okay break them make it nice and simple closed environment etc lay uh, 10 cones out in a line a meter and a half in front and go right you're going to run straight on each time you get to cone you're going to dodge one way then you're going to dodge the other way and so on and you, you kind of work your way down dodging back and forth does that make sense to you yeah. following that yeah yeah so this that from an ecological or this idea of all the information in the environment okay doesn't stand up but that will lead to uh an authentic dodge what would happen mm -hmm. in the game and it's this idea of direct perception so if you're out in a nice sunny day or it doesn't matter any type of day the light arrays from the light source so if you're in sports or it's going to be the lights or if it's the sun outside it's the sun are refracting off of the environmental features so in our sense it's refracting off the cones and being directly perceived by the individual in front of them that will lead to our second theory, dynamical systems, self-organization of our, and I'll come on to that, but for now we'll just say that leads to self-organization, which will lead to us dodging around these cones. The challenge is the way that light would refract in a busy game, and, and so what that will lead is to kids with their heads down, looking at the cones, yeah. all right, and then dodging to the left and dodging to the mm -hmm. right around those cones. In a game, okay, because that's where the light refraction is going, back to the information they have available in that environment. In a game, we want their heads up. We want them, and their heads will probably be up, but they'll be, the light will be refracting and being directly perceived off the players on the pitch. It will lead to a different type of dodge, self or organization or dodging behavior. So I guess what I'm highlighting here is there will be a poor transfer due to this idea of the information in your practice environment is not similar to the information or the representative of the information they're going to have in the game. Mm -hmm. It will lead to very to different self-organization, different different ways of self-organizing. Okay, so that's a that is the theory. I don't semi done it justice there, yeah. but as a whole, but it's around the idea of direct perception. If we move on now to dynamical systems theory, okay, all right, this really starts to challenge us about, um, well, no, it doesn't challenge it. We need to appreciate and understand and start to view the child or children as very complex dynamic systems who are adapting to the environment around them, all right? So, but, that sounds all a bit strange, but if we think about it, we go, well, we have a skeletal system, we have a cardiovascular system, we have a cardiorespiratory, neurobiology, we have all these systems, and what do they do? They're, we aren't directing, they're self-organizing to support us function within our environments. Okay, yeah. that's happening. So it's the idea of, well, we are with a, lots of systems operating and self-organizing to allow us to f functionally 
achieve our outcomes in in our in our environment and, and so the idea here really is we start to see there's a relationship with we've got this the idea of direct perception and self this self-organization of systems depending so if we take it from a um a say if we took a traditional model to teaching or an information processing theory approach to this you would put kids at the start in closed environments and there isn't a lot of information in that environment so what we end up doing is trying to give them a lot of instructions to make up that information and support that self-organization uh, and to me that becomes potentially a bit problematic mm -hmm. so what about the degeneracy yeah okay so this is an interesting one okay so let's take the idea of of um the fosby flop of a high jump let's take the idea of a high jump yeah so and i think actually this will help people articulate all of these different theories together but i'll mention degeneracy along the way so if we think back to the 1968 Olympics and we saw movement creativity like we've never seen it before. So we saw Dick Fosby be the first person ever to go backwards over on the high jump and it was nicknamed the Fosby flop. All right. Risto, before that, what kind of different movement patterns were we seeing to clear a high jump? Foot foot over, diving over. Yeah, the scissor kick. Yeah. Yeah, we saw the scissor kick, the western roll these different kind of movement solutions, mm -hmm. okay? So this is the idea of many different ways potentially to functionally adapt to the task in hand, and it's this adaptation. The reason we can highlight potentially that Dick Fosby was genius was down to his cognitive creativity or this kind of creativity he had, this idea he had, and no doubt he did have this idea, but... There, when you look back at it a little bit, we start to see a few things occur in the lead up and during which are quite uh, lead up and during that Olympics. One was it was the first Olympics where they had a crash mat. So this big blue safety mat was mm -hmm. there. This afforded or gave him the opportunity here to really play around creatively about different ways to jump. And if you read back on some of Dick Fosby, his university was one of the first ones prior to this Olympic to get this crash mat. So it, what it enabled him to kind of explore and adapt different ways. And what, rather than before where they were doing, say, the Western roll and they were jumping, landing on two feet into the sand pit or a scissor kick, you'd land on two feet, it was safe into a sand pit. If you were to go over on your back into a sand pit, you're going to probably break your back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there wasn't any safe. There wasn't any safe way for him to explore. The adding of that crash mat. All right. So we have new information in that environment created him to to explore and discover. So he was doing his own kind of discovery learning, and he found this new functional movement solution emerged, which was a. Um, yeah, the, the Fosby flop, and it goes on to win the Olympics, and everyone sees. But we often forget that the introduction of crash mat and the integral part the environment played in the learning of that. Mm -hmm. um, so, and the idea of degeneracy is very much about the idea that in a class of PE students, that actually they're trying to find functional movement solutions. And what may be functional for me at 5'11", and a kid who's four foot six or whatever, their function, our functional movement solutions may be very different. But that's yeah. all right. That's based on their self-organization happening in a different way. It's based on what they currently uh, capacities they currently have. And for me as an educator, it moves me into a very powerful position where I'm now um, very much respecting the child and where they currently are. They're self-organized, that functional solutions where they're at. And maybe I need to tweak or change things in the environment to change that self-organization pattern. Um, but, and actually, you know what? 
if they show me a solution, it doesn't look how I would do it, but it's functional and it works, I accept it. I respect it. I give them a high five and let's move on. All right? Um, and, and, and yeah, so, so that's kind of the idea of de degeneracy, this idea of there are many ways to perform a certain task, mm -hmm. not one way. And the last thing I'll say on that is a, in our information processing where we're trying to squash their ability or take it out of a system because we're seeing as errors, here we're seeing variability or potentially what might be construed as errors. They're not, in fact, errors, but it's a self-organization trying to calibrate to find this movement solution which works. So it's part of a learning process, and we need to let children go through it and respect it, but we can nudge it along as we go. Yeah. So in the paper, you talked about affordances and you used this great example of uh, playing tag on a, on a grassy hill. Can you explain affordances uh, with that example? Yeah, sure. So again, it, this example, part of my job uh, as a, during my PhD and, and, and actually some of my more recent research is I do assess children's movement skills. Uh, and how good they're, they're currently doing at skills. And, and, and a lot of motor development research does this. And the, that example was to, to, to teach child, well, to assess children at fundamental movement skills. So we, we assess 12 different skills. And they're called fundamental movement skills, running, throwing, jumping. And one of them is a gallop. Mm -hmm. And the example I give in a paper, but I'm going to tell a tiny backstory to it, is... I was, the way this assessment works is you put them into a closed environment, devoid of information, so not an ecological approach at all. And the idea is you want them to demonstrate mastery of a proficient motor pattern. All right, so it's similar to more of an information processing lens. And so I was asking this girl to gallop. So it's kind of like, you're familiar with what gallop looks yeah. like? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so. It's like skipping, but the foot never takes over. You're galloping like, like a horse who kind of does that on two feet. Children do it. Anyway, I was asking this little girl to show me a gallop. She couldn't get... When I, I gave her a demonstration, and then her idea was she had to do it, but she couldn't get her feet to start, and then she tried to do it, and it didn't really work out. It didn't, it didn't work out well at all. Um, she just ended up walking across and being a bit dejected. And I was like, oh, look, don't, mind, don't worry. Never mind. It's fine. Um, oh, the bell goes and we go out for break. We go out to break and then she's um, she's she's uh, playing with her friends in the playground and I'm chatting to one of the teachers and I'm, we're just watching them playing on this grassy bank. And I guess this really highlights what this series I've been talking above are, is she was chasing her friend down this grassy bank and due to the environment she was in about going down a quite a steep incline, but self-organization pattern to stop her from falling over, which emerged was a gallop. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's almost if you're running downstairs, okay, you take on this kind of galloping motion. She did the yeah. same thing. And it really struck me to think about, oh, hang on here. I've just been telling her I want her to perform a skill in an environment and she can't do it. However, when the environmental environment dictates, that skill will emerge, which really lends itself to this idea, idea um, around these. So, yeah, being the environment is almost is a very, if we can get the environmental design right, these opportunities or invitations for actions, which is an afforded, uh, is an affordance, will become available to children. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that that's uh, it's a that example is a little off what affordances are, but it 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 kind of gives you a gist. Yeah, but I mean, it it explains the difference between you trying to teach this thing in a very closed environment and not working. But then it's not that the student can't do it; it's not that they don't have the skill or the motor skill to do it, but they need to be put in the right situation to be able to do it. And if she was running down the hill she would face plant because it would be a steep hill and it was it would not be the right way exactly. to do it because but walking down the hill she would and never catch her friend because it's too slow so it's yeah. putting this together so um, trying to find that functional movement solution which emerges it's not been prescribed she hasn't it's self-organized itself 
mm-hmm. and it's led to a gallop, yeah. all right? And it really made me question why we were doing this assessment because yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I would type that girl, but she can't do that skill, but yes, she actually can. Right. And it's always stuck with me ar- yeah. ar- around this. And it tells us what importance of the assessments potentially we use yeah, in, in education. So what is the, you talk about loud and soft pedagogies. Can you explain those? Yeah, so I guess this comes back to this idea of acquisition and adaptation. So a loud pedagogy, it's not mean like a shouted, shouting or of the teacher. It's not meant in that way. It's meant on this idea that the teacher is quite loud, though, in giving a lot of prescriptive instruction and a lot of feedback. So think of early learning. In that cognitive approach, I'm giving feedback. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly giving them instruction to help them. I still have my intentions are very much with to support the child in their learning. It's not necessarily a bad pedagogy, but it's quite loud. And actually, if we have, if say that isn't, say that information process isn't the the actual the right theory for learning which contemporary theories are saying it's not in fact you're preventing that self-organization of the child mm-hmm. all right you're getting in the way of them exploring those move there to find a functional way to perform the task so we could actually have been having a detrimental effect yeah. one actually loud it's very teacher-centered and it tends to be more prescriptive lots of instructions and quite loud uh, loud so then you go to the other end which is the adaptation and this is a soft pedagogy mm-hmm. it's very much about trying to help the child attune to the environment and explore the environment and find those solutions and support that self-organization process so we don't tell them how to do it we don't correct but we nudge and guide yeah. I always like that saying, I'm not going to tell, like we say, for instance, how else could you do that? What would be another way? Or let me move these, let me move the target further back. Or let me move. So you start to moving the environment to support that exploration. Yeah. And it moves you to a position of really an environmental designer where you're trying to nudge and guide, but you're not having a direct imp- impact because you're wanting the child to continue with their interactions um, with, their, with the environment. Because this is all self-regulation. They need to be able to self-regulate in an environment. They need to explore, find a way which works for them. If we want lead out to physical activity, if we're telling them how to do things and doing it certain ways, they won't learn to adapt and explore uh, in our environments, but then they won't transfer those into our environments outside as yeah. well. And so in the paper, you also talked about, you, you gave a swim example of kind of the problems with this uncertainty or nonlinear pedagogies. And you talk about how it, you know, learning in a very closed, structured environment, like an indoor pool could actually be very dangerous. And if you don't transfer that learning to when you go to the beach or when you go out and open water and it's it's not the same. You don't know that it's a slow, gradual uh, end to to the pool it, because in nature it might just drop off and all of a sudden you can't put your feet down. So can you talk about how teachers can plan for this uncertainty or non, uh, non-linear pedagogies? Yeah, sure. So the environment, again, this is just highlighting the importance of us thinking of ourselves as landscape designers or environment architects and trying to think about how children are going to interact with the environments which they're currently navigating in their world. Now, we obviously, we want all children to learn to swim. That's really important. It's a life skill. And to me, it's a really important job of a potentially physical educator. And I know their hands are potentially tied. It's budgetary, these other elements. But one thing I think as educators we should look at and go, okay, well, there's two things here. One is where are the environments children are most at risk? Is it in a swimming pool or is it actually out in rivers, lakes, seas? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is the latter. And that is where we see the most drownings and the group who drown the most are children. All right. So, we really need to be educating them around and making them understand these environments and gain knowledge of these environments. 
we can tell them about these environments, but that knowledge is impoverished compared to actually being in them and, and what this means. So this kind of brings me on to that second point around this idea of attunement to an environment. So if you think of a swimming pool, it's well lit, it's te tepid water, and there's a lifeguard on the side. Mm -hmm. And also, if you're having your swimming lessons, you have an instructor on the side who's potentially telling you, correcting your technique and getting you to perform better. And that's actually a wonderful start. Like a t if we simplify the task, it's a wonderful place to start, but it shouldn't be the only experience right. for a child. Because what we actually need to do when they ju jump into a lake, the water's freezing, visibility is zero. As you said, they may not be able to feel the bottom or there may be things on the bottom which they could hook their feet on. Mm -hmm. All right? So, and also, if they could... If you go to a dark body of water, there might be areas you can attune, um, look towards, which might give you um, kind of like a sense of where you where you are in where you should to go and where you shouldn't go, yeah. shouldn't go, and like rips, for instance, yeah. and these types of things. You have to kind of be attuned to those environments, and you mm -hmm. have to be in them to see them. Okay, so. But there's a lot to this, of it, and again, I, I go into more detail on the paper, and I recommend people reading it, but the idea is that we need to give children experience of these environments for adaptation to happen. Mm -hmm. And there's been wonderful research by Chris Button in New Zealand, whose highlights shows that if children are exposed or anyone is exposed to these environments or put into freezing water and they have that shock, feeling of shock, their body adapts and that adaptation will last for years. So they jump fall in again or jump in again, but actually their response won't be as quite as bad as the last time they've had it. The last thing I say in this, this is more of a pedagogical point. If we're constantly giving them feedback on the side of a swimming pool around technique, etc., if a child gets into trouble potentially in open water, is they will their first thing is not how do I get myself out of this, is who can help me because mm -hmm. I've, that's how I've always mm. had that. Yeah. Yeah, the other option is actually from a functional point, it's what trying to find their way to solve this solution yeah. and, and to attune to different things in the environment, not looking for someone, which again, obviously every experience, every context differently, but I think for us as educators, it makes us think are we going to do swimming this semester? Okay, if we're doing that for eight weeks in the swimming pool and we're doing that every week for their whole time with us at school, are we, educate, are we educating them around their world and, and making them safer in their world? Yes, to a point, but we could probably do a little bit more. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that's a good example of the rip current. If you've never been in one and you don't know what to do, once you start getting pulled out into the middle of the ocean, you, your automatic reaction is, okay, I'm farther away, I have to swim back. Instead of learning that you have to just swim sideways, it's hard, like just go calmly sideways and you'll get out and then you can swim back in. So um, I thought that was a good example. Another, another thing that you used that rang true to me uh, was this, uh, this section about basketball and urban high school PE. And I found that interesting because we ran a basketball program and an after-school program. And so you talked a lot about, you know, basketball that you teach in school is five on five. Here are the rules, all this stuff, but not a lot of those students will probably play on a structured basketball team, whereas a lot of them might go, especially in urban environments where this is really popular and that's the free source of physical activity they can do. They play on the on the street on like the street basketball courts and the urban basketball courts and those basketball games are not always five on five it might be two on two and there might not be a ref most of the time and so um i don't know if you want to share a little bit about uh that type type of pedagogical approach that could be a little bit better uh when we look at that yeah, no, I love, I, I really enjoyed putting that example together because I'm a big basketball fan as well. But uh, the the idea about that is, and it take, comes from an ecological approach, takes us to going, 
we are trying to educate to uh, educate children to the world they're currently navigating and become and potentially to the big uh, we call it educare okay which which if we look back to the it's the uh, roots of education mm-hmm. uh, education and it's about leading out so the idea of this big theme in this paper is leading out children out to navigate and self-regulate within their current environments they're inhabiting and so as you highlighted a lot of those children for various reasons may not be able to access a, a basketball team uh, or have confidence or competence to go into those environments and but we still will teach layout drills shooting drills go into a game and we'll do that year upon year in our high school pe and for me if you look at the worlds they're navigating and they're a free resource and actually a real culture which is going on is this street basketball like you see it there's there's hoops everywhere there's pickup games they're self-organized they're high intensity um could be depending it could be two on two depending how many people you have to turn up could be three on three could be five and five whatever and they're actually so my idea here was going well how do we rather than getting them ready to go to an after school club go to a pickup game at their local park how do we educate them to that world so one is well let's create a basketball unit which supports this and and takes the characteristics of that dynamic they're going to to help them feel like they can navigate that environment so the way i structured the unit was over six seven week block whatever you have is well you may start the lesson in the or start the unit in the bar in your gym where you'd normally start but you've got the six hook hoops around the side mm-hmm. you might be right we're gonna we're gonna do three on three games this lesson want you to choose your take on you can get them to do whatever you want but basically you get them playing three on three games it's self-reft etc you can be looking around, moving certain children to play with different children, depending on making teams more fair, etc. Maybe taking a two-on-three, if a two of the two seem to be have more experience and are better basketball players, etc., to try to keep the challenge for everyone. But, but the idea was that you'd do that and you would bring in rules and ideas that are likely to come across in the court. So rather than having great technique, it's about flair and cheekiness. Mm-hmm. You know what? You've, you've scored a a lap under the basket and, and support them finding their ways to play the game. And, and, and actually, the idea of them playing two on two, three on three, they're going to get far more hands on the ball, far more opportunity times. And actually through that, they're going to get better at the skill rather than five on five. It tends to gravitate to the better players, etc. Yeah. So from a skill development, there's, there's a potential there. The other, I guess, the key thing about this unit was you progressively move not you don't necessarily change the tasks or the activities you're doing with them they can they can keep the co-developing and designing the games they want to play three on two two on one are you playing to 21 or are you doing some other rules they can kind of take care of that because that's what they would do that pickup game but what you would do is you would be changing the environment in which they're playing so it's ecological perspective you would maybe move them for a third lesson. We're going to go, we're not going to play inside today. We're going out onto the playground courts. We're going to play the game out there. Now the wind becomes a factor. Um, the ball bounces differently off the surface. Okay. There's lots of variation that environment gives and they will need to adapt to that environment. You do that for a couple of weeks. You keep rotating them around. Eventually to finish that unit, you may take them on a field trip to a local in their community and in your school community, that local park courts where they get, because half of them may never have been there, may not even know Nick's existed, even though it's on their doorstep. So you actually take them to that and you may, there may be someone in that environment, a, a sorry, there may be someone who plays there or knows there, a community worker who could potentially tell them and, and introduce them and say, oh, this is played on a Saturday, this is how it's played. They can have a go on the court, get used to the dynamics. They know where it is. And it might be that as a group they go down and play after school or whatever. But you are 
educating to the world in which they're surrounding and is around them. Yeah, and you're so, supporting yeah, that, that, that transfer of, of learning into the community because we know that we'll never have enough time in PE to actually do everything we want to do. So taking that transfer, making that connection with the community worker who might be, like you say in the paper, a friendly face, uh, can be a really helpful thing for them to then continue doing this on weekends, even when you have to move to different content than, than basketball. So Most definitely. The last thing I say on this as well, and this is really important because how often do we see kids actually progress? If, if we're teaching the same like basketball from uh, over here, we say year seven to year 11, or you may grading slightly different over where you guys are. But the idea is we're teaching, like they haven't got enough time in our lessons to become good basketball yeah. players. But if they're playing in that street league, like I was watching um, the Pelicans play the other day and Zion Williams was being interviewed. And the interviewee asked, said, Bledsoe says you are the most uh, willful, have the biggest will to win out of any player I've ever seen. And he first the response, it wasn't, oh, I learned that at college or I learned that. It was, I learned that on the streets. Mm-hmm. I learned that when I was like seven, eight years old playing with men. And the yeah. way they were playing and making me and that's what and he was doing that on a nightly basis around the constraints of that environment will find he will find a way to survive to function mm-hmm. and that leads to him becoming a a megastar yeah. and that rich variability so the idea actually that a lot of these and, and i'm sure there's so many nba players who would have a very similar story mm-hmm. um and and so it constrains it's not just the physical it's the psychological it's this whole it all is constrained by the environments in which we are inhabiting and 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 that for me if we talk of things like physical literacy that is a free source that child potentially can navigate that world and have a very enriched experience throughout their life and attachment to that basketball that little that area and play and you see that and for me that's what physical literacy is but that's another story yeah uh, so in wrapping this up, what do you think that PE teachers could immediately do to start moving in the directions that you talk about in, in your paper? Uh, I think explore these theories of motor learning. I, I've made my mind up where I kind of fit now in this more ecological dynamic sense. I think explore it, understand it, or you may want to go the information processing route. That's fine, but these will all definitely give you tools and, and actually a, a framework to support learning through movement, which is essential. So that'd be my first is read this paper, read other papers, which kind of exploring these, the uh, motor learning and how it can help us educate. Um, the other, I guess it would be to think about the environment first and that's a built environment in which we're educating and how that can, and the task we're using and how they interact and what will emerge from that before we put ourselves into this. Mm-hmm. Creative dance, I teach that outside under an oak tree. Why do I do that? Because I don't have to teach creative. The, the environment and the music I put in that environment will emerge. Kids will behave very differently in that environment and will dance differently compared to how they will dance in a sports hall mm-hmm. without me having to give instructions. It, that will happen. I can then add to that and make that, bring that further along. That's my role as an educator. I think that's very important to consider. And, so don't, and, and the last thing I say is don't step in straight away. See skill development, not as an acquiring and about us providing, but seeing it as about, uh, children moving from instability to stability so they are unstable in a movement and their errors are seen as part of that learning process they will become stable once they become stable that's when we will look to make a change because Mm -hmm. they've now adapted and found a functional movement solution if we can perturb or create an create instability through that safe uncertainty in that, they will have to readapt. And that's where learning. So learning happens in, in, in a, if we can create environments of safe uncertainty. And, and that's, 
that's important. It's not chaos, but it isn't kind of a rote repetition. No learning is going to be happening there. We need to create an instability or uncertainty in environment and children will try to find a way to become stable in those environments. Yeah. Yeah, so or as, my friend, as my friend Nate Babcock says, K-order. That is how he describes his elementary classes. So a little bit of chaos, some order, but that is that is a ripe place to learn. So uh, James, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I've learned a lot through talking to you and reading the paper. Uh, it definitely pushed me to think a little bit outside the box of what I traditionally look at. And and it was, it was interesting to read through the theories that I kind of employ, but I don't know that I'm doing it. Uh, so um, it was really good. Thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.